The reading is starting in the Gospel of Luke, verse, chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. And now we're carrying on in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. The Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, good evening, everybody, and welcome particularly to those of you who are joining us on, online. My name is Elizabeth Berridge, and I've had the pleasure of being a member of this congregation for, gosh, about 15 uh, years. And uh, it's my privilege to uh, preach to you uh, this evening. And uh, although Rupert, our vicar, gave me uh, Making Christmas Count, I changed the title to The Spirit of Christmas. And I wasn't meaning, I didn't sort of choose Christmas spirits. I thought that might make us think more about what we need to buy and maybe what things you might consume at Christmas time. But to actually make us reflect back on the fact that this event that we have had read to us is, in essence, a spiritual event. And I think, um, as Gwenda Horden prayed this morning, particularly at this time, our spiritual vision can become blurred. And it's particularly blurred because we have the unfortunate experience of living through a pandemic, 
which has made us focus so much on the physical. My upgrade to a medical-grade mask or the test that I take in the morning, we all seem to be analysing very carefully our physical condition. But I hope that by the end of what we have taught to us today, we will want to come and worship and we will know that God is spirit. So I'm going to begin by praying. Lord God, I do thank you so much for this evening. I thank you for the freedoms to uh, come and hear your word. But Lord God, you know that this part of your word is um, rather difficult, Father. And I just do pray that as I come to the end and have come to the end of my understanding and my language, Lord God, that you would take every word that I say and place it into people's hearts, either those watching online or those here this evening, for your sake and for your glory. Amen. Now, for those of you who like to have a structure, I'm afraid I haven't got any overhead. So here we go. The word before. We've got three befores, then something to do with Santa, and a final little story. So first of all, the before, the first before, before Luke. I've always been intrigued by the fact that actually, between obviously the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have about 400 years of basically darkness. So I think it's important that we remember that as the Old Testament finishes, the latest sort of books or events are Nehemiah and and or Ezra and Malachi. So the walls have been rebuilt, the word has been rediscovered, the temple is back, but the period of prophets, priests and kings is over. As we begin, obviously that 400 years was not nothing in terms of human history, obviously here comes the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which aren't at the end of the Old Testament. And obviously, Rome has now occupied the Promised Land. So there they are in Israel. And as we know from what was preached this morning by Sam, there's Zechariah doing the worship in the temple. So we have priests, but we have no kings, and we have not had any prophets. We have had silence from heaven for 400 years in the manner in which the people of Israel would have understood God to be talking to them. So before the shepherds, as we had read to us, we then have God communicating to us that this is a, an indescribable, unfathomable change in human history. God is going to come and be with us and God is going to do something completely amazing. So before the shepherds, suddenly from 400 years of nothing, we have angels in abundance. We have Zechariah with his angel, we have Mary with her angel, and we have Joseph, if you look up the Gospel of Matthew, with his angel. In the language that the people of Israel would have understood of being filled with the Spirit, Zechariah, once he has uh, repented, as um, uh, Sam said this morning, Zechariah, before he brings his prophecy, he's filled with the Spirit. Elizabeth is filled uh, with the Spirit. Mary has a, a description that we haven't, I don't believe, found before of being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit because, of course, what's happening to her is utterly unique. And we have this interesting John the Baptist in the womb filling with the Holy Spirit. Here we have God suddenly from 400 years of no prophets and none of this filling of the Spirit, suddenly getting the attention of the people. Here it is, something is about to happen. And he does this as we come to, as I say, before the shepherds, when they have their amazing experience of the proclamation of the good news from heaven. So I'm just going to read the description from a devotional book by Stephen Rand. I've been using it at the moment, which helpfully today talked about angels. 
To some people, therefore, the role of the angels in the Christmas story is no more than the reminder of a fairy tale unreality of the season. While to others, it is a sign and a confirmation of the spiritually cosmic significance of God's intervention in human history. They are created by God, worshipping God in the heavenly places yet capable of sin, and visible to human beings only when God chooses usually to carry out specific tasks. They are an interface between the physical world and the spiritual world, which is just as real, but not discerned with the physical senses. Now, here we have, with the angels, this spiritual heavenly event. And it's one of the things it's not. It's not one of those, it's become quite vogue to talk about thin places. Uh, you know, we might go to Hebridean Islands if you've watched Ben Fogel or um, places. It's, it usually seems to be places with islands and at the top or the bottom of the globe, for whatever reason. Thin places where, you know, people will say that the boundary between heaven and earth is sort of close. And it's not a thin experience. Now, I, and I'm not saying these are not true things. There may be places on God's earth where, the, where it's thin. And I do know of people who would testify that their experience, particularly through grief, uh, the grief of losing a child in one of my friends, that that veil between the here and heaven seems to feel very close, as if you can reach out and touch the other side. Thin experiences or thin places. Not, that's not what we're talking about here. And we're not talking about what I call my Milky Way experience. So I went on holiday to Cornwall one year. And I'm not the scientist. I'm the sort of humanitarian, humanities and maths per, uh, and uh, law person. But my friend said, look, you know, there's something happening outside tonight. You should go out and have a look. So dutifully, because I was staying with them, it was their cottage, went outside, stood on this little mound. And of course, I've seen the sky from quite a few parts of the earth, Australia, uh, Africa, obviously here, America. But as I stood there, I couldn't really stand up because somehow or other, the position of the earth on that particular night meant that I was seeing all the way down the Milky Way and seeing why it's called the Milky Way. It's as if I was seeing cosmically to the end there and I literally was losing my balance with, oh my goodness, this is a tiny planet we're on and I'm seeing all of this here. This is utterly amazing. It's beyond that. So it's not a thin event and it's not like my Milky Way experience. This is transparent. This is the shepherds visibly seeing heavenly beings as we have written by Luke. It's like the best analogy, and it's only an analogy, they're all limited, is if you think of heaven as a bubble and earth as a bubble, and I know they're not, but it's an analogy. You know how bubbles just come together, and sometimes they come together for a time, and then sometimes they part again. And it's as if God is saying, I'm going to come and you're going to see. And during this passage here, we see at the beginning here, heavenly action. This is going to be an intervention, a transaction, because of the nature, as Rupert said to us at the carol service, of the spiritual relationship that's broken. This is a transaction of a completely different genre. genre. So we come now to John. And I can't blame the vicar here. I chose this. I think I repented from the moment I chose it. John is the last gospel. And I think before we do our before here, we need to understand where John is and what he's doing. He's very, this is a very different description. It's the last gospel written, and John is this disciple whom Jesus loved. He's been with him throughout. He's one of the first disciples. 
He sat next to him at the Last Supper. It's to him that Mary is given when Jesus is on the cross. He is also the author of 1, 2, 3, John and Revelation. And he's at this point in time, though, if we imagine the point in time in which he is living, he's not only seen, obviously, the shepherds. He has seen, he's lived with Jesus. He's seen death. He's seen resurrection. He's seen ascension. He's seen Pentecost. And almost certainly the three first Gospels. He has seen. So imagine all of this. Imagine you are John and you have got all of this and you're going to communicate this. Where do you start? Somebody, Dr. A.T. Pearson says, John leads us past the veil into the Holy of Holies because what John doesn't do is what basically Matthew and Luke do, which is start with a genealogy. So Matthew, which is written to the Jews, starts obviously tracing Jesus back to Abraham, because that's if your audience is Jewish, that's where you need to start. Now, and he's not doing what Luke does, because later, about Luke 3 or Luke 4, you have the genealogy moment. Now, Luke is wanting to say, everybody's in this, outsider, Samaritan woman, everybody's in this. So Luke goes back to Matt Adam. All makes sense here. But what is John doing here? The main point of John is he is telling us this This person that I lived with, that I ate with, that I saw die and I saw resurrected, this person is God. Yes, we think that's all, that's the Christmas story, Elizabeth, of course. But he's saying, he's going to tell us the uniqueness of the Christian faith here. This person, Jesus, God, is the true I'm God. You see, what he's saying here is Jesus has no birth certificate, actually. Jesus didn't just exist for 33 years. Or Jesus didn't exist because God the Father sort of created him at year zero and then he lives until obviously all of the end of time. He also is knocking out the the teaching that begins about the fact that Jesus was not divine until baptism, where the Holy Spirit, where the Father says, is my son in whom I'm well pleased and the Holy Spirit is there. Very rare occasion where you apparently have all three of the Godhead on earth at the same time. He will tell you who God is and who he has always been. And when one looks at John 1, if you're looking chronologically at the Bible, so this is before, our final before, Genesis. The in the beginning in Genesis is not actually the beginning. Because what John won't have is God understood as like God the creator, because then he kind of needs the created form to actually be this God. This is the beginning of the interaction of all the knowledge that we have about God. And what John is saying here is this Jesus that we've suspended our moment that he's in the cradle has existed throughout the entirety of time before there existed anything at all. This this person that I've lived with and ate with and seen and seen him die, this was the true wine God from before the creation of anything present with us. He's knocking it all out of the water. He won't have them misunderstand this point. But how does he go on to communicate this? It's, it's, you know, we would, I have to say, I've wrestled with this, because I'd say in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was, why, why not? Well, it's John's audience, I think, that's the answer to that. John is talking to both the Jews and the Gentiles, so the Greeks, John uses the the word word, which in Greek is logos. 
To the Old Testament, to you, if you're a Jew reading this, and I understand my vicar has Jewish heritage, so I'm on slippery ground here, but to the Jews, as I understand it, when you talk about the word of God, it's creation, it talks about revelation, it talks about deliverance. So they will have understood this word to be God. To the Greeks, the word logos had 500 years of meaning in Stoic philosophy of the power that controls the world. So if you were in the media in communication terms, you'd say he just really cut through with this. It's an incredibly powerful use of language, communicating the same thing to both of sections of his audience at once. It would have probably been easier, I, I would have thought, for the Jews to understand that actually because of the Holy Spirit being there at creation, they'll have read the Torah, that this is God the, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What he is planting in here is that essence of relationship, of trinity, and that they did all that earthly creation together. It's why when we get to John 10, it's very clear the Jews understand that he's claiming to be God. There's no, there's no like, oh, is he the king of the Jews? Is he the son of God? No, he's claiming to be God. John is getting that cut through. And it's why you, you read later on in John, in John 17, he talks about the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. It is beyond our language to understand that there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is spirit. We will worship him in spirit and in truth and he is love. A pre-existent to us, relationships spinning around a totally perfect, powerful relationship. You see, I think it, sometimes we get stuck at this point in time because God is there in the manger for us. And obviously, we, like John, have got all of that experience of you know, Jesus dying, the resurrection, the ascension. But you see, and this is where I, I'm going to probably leave the door open to those more theologically qualified than myself. Because as I've reflected upon this and on Jesus, you know, the baby in the manger, I think what I had exposed was a, a mis understanding I had. We are taught very much, we're evangelicals, and we're taught a lot about the cross and about redemption, and we're, talk, we're, talk to, we're taught about the, the schism, the unique thing that happens, you know, for redemptive purposes of Jesus' death on the cross and the schism in the Godhead. It's not there in the manger, though. Yes, there is, obviously, Jesus has come and is in bodily form, and there are times in the Bible where Jesus goes to be, spend time with the Father, and we have, as I said, the baptism, so there is, you know, he's emptied himself and is in bodily form. But there isn't that schism there then. And neither is there at Pentecost. Why, why is it that sometimes when we sort of think about Pentecost, he sent his Holy Spirit, but it's not as if the Godhead has chopped up the Holy Spirit into lots of little bits and given me a bit in my heart and some a bit in his heart and Heidi's got a bit over there. Somehow or other, the complete Trini Trinitarian Godhead is complete at these moments in our human history. And there I'll just be able to say what it is not. Because I think, you know, when I reflect back on my years of walking with the Lord, I've heard a lot of sermons about the cross and about the resurrection, about the ascension. I've heard sermons on God the Father, God the Son. The nature of the Trinity is something that this is what John is planting as the uniqueness of the Christian faith, not actually the resurrection. And why the, one of the basic creeds of the Christian church I always get the wrong, is it the, and, and not the, and Anastasian creed, is before all things. And before all things is the Trinity, the existence of God.
So all through history, you kind of understand now when we look back at Luke why they just were left those fields and they went and worshipped this. Not just because it was angelic, but because this was the Trinitarian God who was intervening in human history to rescue us. And why Colossians 2 talks about all the fullness of God in bodily form. Much of this is, of course, beyond our comprehension. And as I've prepared this, there's been times where I've thought and thought, you know, what if we take away all the physical in the world? Is there anything that we would then see? Of course we would. But sometimes we just get bogged down in our flesh and in our reality to know that there is actually, the battle is not against flesh and blood. You see, what it goes on to say at the end of John's passage is that we have the right to become children of God because we are born of God. And as John says later on, uh, records later on about Nicodemus, yes, we are born again. It's a spiritual transaction that we're talking about here. Now, I think, and unless we understand this as a spiritual transaction, I think we don't worship as we should worship. And coming to um, my Santa moment here, I think it's a barrier. I think we, we often, it's at Christmas time, and as children, you would write our little list and say, if we've been good, we'll get this, that, and the other. But I do think profoundly that we do carry a lot of that into our relationship with God. And it's a barrier to worship because we think we're going to have to be perfect before we can worship this true iron God. And that's precisely not what he's on about. There are things in all of us, there are things in me as we stand here, but it's about him and about his intervention in human history. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, including my own heart sometimes. So don't get that barrier there, that you've got to have been a good person. And you look back over this year and say, Elizabeth, if you only knew. God knows. And John isn't a universalist here. He knows that we, you know, we have things to repent of. But if we come to him, we can worship him in spirit and in truth. I think I found this, you know, I think as a, as a Christian, you kind of, you know, you, you know that you'll grow if you pray, and you know, if you grow, you read the Bible. But what John is saying here is that we would worship in spirit and in truth. And sometimes we think, well, worship in spirit, is that, and isn't that just all to do with the spiritual gifts? And that gets all a little bit, and we're not kind of quite sure about that. But I don't think that's what he's meaning. And my final uh, story that I want to leave you with is, is sort of, there's two elements to it. First of all, I think worshipping builds a, like a spiritual strength into us that's, in, that's not really discernible. It's a bit like, um, if, you'd have to, if you'd have said to any of my friends and family five years ago that I would get a personal trainer, they would have like, laughed you out of, out of the room. I have called personal trainers over the years personal torturers. This is not an easy process if you embark upon it. When you're like me and you just had, you know, PE was not something. And I have to say, it was arduous. I was like dragging my feet, like it was raining at school, like going over to the hockey hockey field, and I hated it. But as I did it and persevered and carried on doing it, it did actually change me. And when I then had to lift a sofa up some stairs, I thought, oh, this PT thing, um, it actually has changed me. And worshipping God, whether that is, you know, and a lot of that is not just in singing, But there are those times where, as the psalmist calls it, deep calls to deep, where we worship with the Lord, where there is communion with him. It changes us. And I just want to conclude with, and and I have got permission to share this. I had the immense privilege when I first joined this church, which was back in 2005, 
to be in a prayer triplet with a lady called Margaret McVeigh, that some of you all know, and Margaret of the prayer triplet was Wisdom. Northern Irish Presbyterian lady, been a school teacher, you can imagine. Lay chair of the PCC, Mary Lewis's predecessor, wonderful lady. And another lady called Meta Beard. Now, many of you all know this is Mark Beard's first wife. To Margaret's wisdom, Meta was worship. When you met Meta, you just loved being with her because she was just spending that time in communion with God. And I, I, at this time, towards the end of our, of our time as a prayer trio, was the time I got appointed, I'm a member of the House of Lords, and you have this lovely ceremony where you put the red robe on and you take the oath and you can have a meal in the dining room afterwards and you just get to invite a very small group of friends and family to this. So Margaret was there and obviously I wanted Meta to be there. Meta had had a diagnosis of terminal cancer. We missed Meta being there by, I reckon, about a week. And so... After I was introduced in the House of Lords, I got this request. Meta was in Trinity Hospice. Could I go and take the little DVD of this five-minute ceremony to Trinity Hospice? So Mark picks me up, and you know, I'm not quite sure what I said in the car. I wasn't quite sure what you're supposed to say in these circumstances, not being experienced. You know, I'd been to funerals, but I'd never seen anybody in this in a hospice. And so I'm stealing myself for what she's going to look like physically, because Meta was a beautiful lady. And I hadn't seen her for, I don't know how long, probably a few weeks at this point. Stealing myself. So I, I walk through the door, and, and Mark, and I think it was Hannah, uh, left, and I s- start setting up the computer. And indeed, the treatment and whatever had affected her physically. But she was alive. I looked at her, and she was alive. The spirit within her, whilst her body was failing, was as alive and as strong and as vibrant and as powerful as I think I've ever seen. I was stunned that it was those, that years and years of worship that she had at that time. And we watched this and uh, she then... Mark came back unpacking up and she made them watch it as well. And she died about, I think, four or five days later. It is my prayer, and I believe from what we've read in Scripture today, that we would, this Christmas time, want to come and worship, that we would be so alive in our spirits as Meta was, that we would be ready at that time to worship him in his glory with his angels. Amen.